<laughs> let's insert this spoiler warning in the beginning of the episode in this spoiler warning I guess it's time to die. Welcome to the Flick Lab. Finally, to the finishing line of the James Bond <coughs> marathon. We have quite a lot of people here tonight. Six. This is a record. So I'm Corey, your host. Then we have our guests, David Lowbridge Ellis from License to Queer. Welcome. Hello. And Dr. Lisa Funnel. And of course, my regular stars, Mr. Zach Penn. After that marathon, I need to like recarb and get a leg massage. <laughs> and Tom, Mr. Tom Franklin. Hello. I'll have a prolectic digestive enzyme shake, please. All right. <laughs> Certainly. Welcome to the party, my dear. Thank you very much. I'm the Bond expert, so called. <laughs> How, how's the cloud formation, Tom? It's uh, precipitous. And Henrik, last but not least, Henrik, what an unpleasant surprise. Well, we aim to please. I think that covers all here. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we have time for. Henrik, how's and from it going? that side, we all know that Tom picked up on from where those lines were taken. But not many people get it. That's the thing. If and it quickly turns very awkward. <laughs> I'm sure Lisa and me were getting it. We were just being polite because we're the guests. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that was it. I'm going. <laughs> 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 we won't be so polite in about ten minutes. Give us time to warm up and okay. get some strong opinions on the go. Let's talk about our guests a little bit more here. So, we have. Uh... Lisa Funnel and Lisa, you're the co-author of the the geographies, genders, and geopolitics of James Bond, and the author of For His Eyes Only, The Woman of James Bond, and other publications. But I guess the most pertinent material here is these two. And would you like to tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. I have been studying James Bond since the early to mid 2000s, right when Bond scholarship um, as a field of study was really getting off the ground floor. And I had the opportunity to learn from some of the really great thinkers of the early 2000s. My own work is really about examining aspects of gender, feminism, but more broadly identity, social justice. I've expanded it into geography, geopolitics, really trying to understand the messages being relayed through this global pop cultural franchise um, about gender, identity, uh, geopolitics, and power. And so the first book that I put out for His Eyes Only the Women of James Bond is an anthology and it really came from watching Skyfall and seeing the legacy of James Bond being, uh, in a sense, put forward and propelled forward 
at the at the sacrifice of so many women in that film and I wanted to create a collection and there's 28 essays 28 scholars from around the world talking about various aspects about gender and feminism really reflecting upon it and then moving from there I have done a lot of work with Klaus Dodds he is a professor of geopolitics at Royal Holloway University of London he actually specializes in the Antarctic (laughs) but he does popular geopolitics in James Bond and and we wrote this book. It's definitely a passion project. It was written by email. We hadn't, we didn't talk. We didn't Zoom. We didn't meet uh, until after the book was done. This is definitely a, a, a publication for the digital era. And it was just our passion going back and forth, talking about various facets of geopolitics and geography and connecting a gender and feminist lens throughout. And it really is a fascinating and unique read looking at everything from the depiction, the the gendering of geopolitical relations with, say, the United States and the Soviet Union and or Russia to resource conflict in the world of Bond to the different types of spaces um, that and how they're presented. So we talk a bit about the difference between East Asian and Southeast Asian spaces, whether it's horizontal or vertical buildings, different types of textures, materials, and so forth. And our last chapter focuses in on the representation of of the heartland where we talk a lot about um, the world is not enough, Skyfall, and Spectre. And I will tell you that once Klaus has seen the film, we're going to be writing a paper, uh, a review for the International Journal of James Bond Studies, probably looking at aspects of, 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 of sort of nature and the elements, because I already messaged Klaus and said, that's what we're, we're writing the paper on. So there's a lot of stuff in no time to die when it comes to the elemental and its gendering and its connection to particular characters. Wow. Sounds pretty comprehensive. So what was the kind of the, the way, how, how did you find your way into James Bond's world? You know, I think I stumbled. I, uh, <laughs> how did I find my way here? I've always followed my passions. And I've always let, in a sense, my, my heart be the direction of, of, of my career paths and my life path. And I was taking uh, my master's degree in pop culture at Brock University in Canada. And I happened to take a cultural theory course with a professor named uh, Jim Leach, who was one of the first people talking about and studying James Bond. And he was like, hey, Lisa, no one's really talking about the women of Bond. You should consider studying this. And I was like, okay, cool. And so I wrote my master's thesis on the Bond girl phenomenon, uh, did a quantitative content analysis of at that point, there were 20 films. And then of course, moving forward from there, continuing my studies, my PhD, I wrote my thesis on on Chinese action women, but that's because I loved Michelle Yeoh and Tomorrow Never Dies. I was inspired by James Bond to continue to doing research on Asian action women. But all along, I just kept, publishing in James Bond and really just expanding my my worldview. And I'm very fortunate to be employed at the University of Oklahoma in a women's and gender studies department. I had a great chair, Dr. Jill Irvine, who saw my potential and I remember for my my James Bond course, we had to pilot it as an online course to see if it was popular, right? To see if students would actually take this type of course. And it was so popular in the online version that they had to, the numbers basically showed that we had to have an in-class version. And I'm very proud of the fact that it's also a general education course. It's a gen ed requirement. <laughs> so you get like, like double credit for taking my course. Um, but it's just, it's a really thoughtful 
comprehensive look at, at aspects of gender and identity and geopolitics and history. And I take students through the James Bond franchise. There's 15 weeks we watch, 15 or 16 films. There's a week that we double up. And I just take them through and we have conversations really exploring why this franchise is popular, what people got out of it, um, how, how things have changed, how times have changed. We have sometimes those difficult conversations about sexual violence in the early Connery era films. I'm somebody who's not afraid to have these types of conversations. Um, and, and definitely encouraging my students to, to critique, right? And to be critical, but at the same time, and I'll throw this out there, I'm a different generation than my students. Like I, I might look young, but I don't feel young. Like the PhD aged me on the inside, not the outside. I sort of have like this time capsule on the outside, but um, I'm, of, I'm of a different generation. And as the years go by, I don't know how many generations are between us, but it's really important for me to listen to them. And I want to know what they see in film. I want to know what they think. I want to know what they feel. And I tell my students, look, at the end of the day, I'm invested as an expert in this field. I want to know what you see because it matters to me because it's going to influence the way that I start thinking about and talking about this franchise. And so I think it's really important to understand that I'm not just doing this in a sense um, because it's just a passion of mine. I'm doing this in order to understand who my students are, where they come from, how they engage in film, and if James Bond is still relevant to their generation. And it looks like tonight we have a fan of yours, and I can perfectly see why. David, would you like to tell us a little bit about that, maybe, and the license to queer? Yeah, so um, taking an academic approach to Bond was something that I didn't even know you could do until um, I encountered academics like Lisa. So I am actually a little bit starstruck today, Lisa. Uh, I've got your books um, on my shelves at home, and whenever I'm embarking upon a new article that touches on Bond girls in particular... Um, I uh, definitely defer to your expertise um, first uh, be, and, and that help, kind of helps me form my own thoughts because my my own academic background is actually in English. I've got a, 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 um, a BA in uh, linguistics and lin literature, which yeah, yeah, are kind of useful for breaking down bond. I've got a master's in leadership, uh, educational leadership specifically, so that kind of sets me up to be a Bond villain one day if I ever want to be one. <laughs> and uh, But I've actually got no academic training in uh, film, for instance, as a discipline, but I've taught it. So uh, my day job is working in, in schools, although I don't actually do much teaching nowadays. I do more of the leading and managing side of things. But when I do get to teach lessons, I've taught English film and loads of other stuff over the years. So, yeah, um my my website that I started 18 months ago, Licensed to Queer, was um, was the result of decades, to be honest, of having all these thoughts about Bond. They've been going around in my head, um, driving me crazy. So I thought I might as well, you know, put them down uh, in a series of blogs. And I wrote three or four before I launched the website. And then things went a bit crazy <laughs> and now there's like 200,000 <laughs> words on there and there's uh, a, 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 not just my writing but about a dozen other people um, all but one of whom identifies as LGBTQ plus and the, 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 the reason why I started that was because I was just sick of not having queer perspectives represented in the Bond conversation perhaps similar to to Lisa really in in the sense that Bond is traditionally seen as a very male thing 
And I know Lisa is really passionate about um, seeing it from female point of view, but I'm interested in seeing Bond from as many different point of views as possible. And that's, you know, I'm a, I'm a white gay man living in England and I'm desperate to, you know, include as many perspectives as possible. So if anyone listening wants to write for the website and identify as anywhere on the LGBTQ spectrum, uh, please get in touch. But um, I, I particularly like it when people get, um, I don't, I'm not afraid to use these sorts of words in this crowd, but auto-ethnographic. So I, whenever I write an article, I try to bring part of myself into it. I think it's almost like a form of therapy, really, because <laughs> there was a point in my life where I did, like, in my early 20s go, why do I like James Bond? I'm a gay man and Bond isn't gay. And right. so I've, uh, and then obviously, you know, that's highly contestable uh, now, now that I've looked into it in some detail. Uh, so, yeah, it's sort of for therapy, really, because I'm I think I think like many people on this podcast, I'm I think my obsession with James Bond is borderline unhealthy at times uh, in the way that I uh, uh, seek to emulate aspects of his lifestyle and that kind of thing. So like my pieces. Right, and I find kind of both of your your work re really fascinating from from this kind of angle because I find find that there's so much there to look into when reading your blog, for example. First, I had this kind of a knee jerk reaction, like like this is going to be too much reaching, and there can't be that much material to draw from. But there is, and it's really shocking to see it time and time again. I was just reading the last time I was I was reading about your the man with the golden gun analysis and wow just everywhere really yeah i i'm always quite surprised myself if i'm honest so when i approach a, a film you know like man with the golden gun i've seen dozens of times i funnily enough i actually watched it this afternoon when it was on on tv here in the uk um mm. even though i've got it on blu-ray dvd and whatever i just thought i'd watch it while it was on tv while i was making the dinner today and yeah, I mean, a film like that, you think, where's the LGBTQ plus appeal here? And then I watch it with what I call queer lenses on. And then I see so much stuff that I've never seen before. Um, to the point that I wondered when I went into No Time to Die, which I know we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, but when I went into No Time to Die, I was thinking, am I going to stop myself from seeing this from a queer point of view because it's the first time I've ever seen this film. Uh, I didn't stop myself, so that answers that question. It's kind of like I've, I've opened Pandora's box now. E every time I look at any aspect of Bond, I see it with those queer lenses on, which I think I was doing subconsciously. You know, mm -hmm. I, my, my, my love of Bond goes back to when I was about six years old, so I've had more than 30 years practice at this. But it's definitely something that my brain is trained in those. I form those mental models of queerness and the way I approach these films now. So I, I actually can't look at Bond without seeing it from through queer lenses now. And I imagine Lisa's the same from um, fr mm -hmm. from her point of view as well. Yeah, I love it. And right. I just want to keep encouraging you to you can look through it whatever lens you want, but if that's yeah. now your natural default lens, I encourage it. Cause I think we need more, like you said, more lenses, more perspectives, mm. you know, more intersectional diversity in the films, outside of the films, but also in our commentary about the films. And for me, mm. the greater diversity of perspectives, the better, the more I learn because I only have one particular lens yeah. and set of experiences. So I love the work that you do and I'm, I'm very supportive of it. 
Oh, thank you, Lisa. Just to be <laughs> extremely reductive for just a moment, are those queer lenses, are they like hot pink? Are they purple? Or is there glitter? <laughs> oh, they're, they're, they're every color of the rainbow, darling. <laughs> oh, love that. David, I also heard that you had a private screening for No Time to Die. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. How, how was it? Yeah, it was, it was great, actually. I, 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 I can't remember. We went to the cinema just after they'd reopened here in the UK. Uh, I can't even remember what we went to see, some Marvel film or other, I think. And uh, just before the film started, the, the kind of advertising came up. Uh, you can hire this screen for however much... And then that planted the seed. So long story short, I ended up hiring a private screen, which wasn't cheap, but not as expensive as you probably think it's going to be. But I have quite a few vulnerable family members. So I wanted to see Bond with my family. And initially I thought, okay, just just blood relations, keep it to about 15, 20 people. Um, but then they came back and said, well, our smallest screen is 47. So I think, okay, I still want to socially distance and all that kind of thing. So... I uh, we invited our what I call chosen family, the people we're really really close to as well. So it, I've I've got to say my my experience of No Time to Die has probably been tainted, in a good way by by seeing it in those circumstances, surrounded by just people I I love and I'm really close to. Um, I've only seen No Time to Die once. I haven't been back to see it yet. I'm partly scared to go back to see it um, because I think, oh God, what if my what if my second viewing is not as positive as my first one? Uh, but yeah, it, it was definitely an experience and one I'd repeat if uh, if um, it, for the next Bond film. Yeah, there's been this this kind of talk that um, after you go to see it for the second time, you kind of might have your whole perspective changed for the better mm -hmm. regarding the film because it's kind of a shocker the whole film when you first see it. So you might be kind of a, in loss of words when you see it for the first time. I went to see the film at Gibraltar on the twenty ninth, and it was a wonderful experience. I've I've been there before, but like a long time ago, it was great to be back and uh, it was a super small theater but there was something to it it was really intimate and there wasn't even that many people around maybe like five six seven people when you say gibraltar do you do you mean gibraltar attached to spain yeah that gibraltar oh yes. wow okay when amazing so you flew to gibraltar to watch no time to die uh well i just took the bus actually because i live uh really nearby now um, oh do you i'm i'm finished but i i moved to spain recently and live in oh. malaga i went yeah. to gibraltar a few weeks ago for um first yeah. time i'd ever been largely because of li the living daylights of course. <laughs> <laughs> i realized that there's a lot of people here tonight but let's try to take like a short tour of how was everyone's kind of experience mm. of going going to the theater tom mr tom franklin tom hello. how was your experience hello, hello, hello. going there well, I actually saw the film three hours ago, so I'm really fresh. It's really yeah. fresh. Um, <laughs> I'm still kind of processing the whole thing. Shaken and stirred, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I think I need more, much more time to process. Roger more. All experience. <laughs> um, it was strange. That's the word I've got for it so far. It's strange. Mm. It's different. Henrik, how was your experience? Well, I've seen it yesterday. So I'm also relatively fresh. And not to go too much into spoilers about how I felt. 
I, I don't know. My my the theater experience was actually pretty average. I, I've actually seen it now three times, and on the third time I was gonna supposed to go there with notes, and I and I did, and I had pen and paper, and I couldn't see anything. Yeah. I was in the back row, and somehow after like the first week they had removed all the so-called Vose showings of this movie so you couldn't hear it in English anymore <laughs> so I had to I was I didn't want to I really didn't want to hear it in Spanish dub but what you gonna do what about Zach yeah I saw this film on Friday night my husband and I are very lucky that we live across the street from an AMC Dolby theater so we saw it there and it was a packed house so that always makes things a little more fun. Everyone in masks, thank God. We were um, pleasantly surprised by the crowd. There was It was very respectful, but there was one person in particular who was so engaged in the film they could not help themselves but to directly interact with the screen at times. Not giving anything away, there was a moment... <laughs> There's a moment where a uh, a child is told, don't touch anything. And then about four and a half seconds later, she's reaching out to touch a plant. Oh my God, she just said, don't touch anything. What are you doing? Like it, <laughs> full voice. It was hilarious. So yeah, it was a good experience. Anything you want to say about the entire franchise? You know, before we go to No Time to Die, finally. I think I might be the least experienced person here when it comes to Bond. Uh, you oh, can count no, on one. That's, that's me. You? You're, you're the Bond expert. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, you can count on one hand the, the number of Bond films that I've seen. And I saw Spectre the day before I saw this one for the first time. Um, I'm sorry. So I, I've I've not seen many. I, <laughs> thank you. I, I appreciate your sympathies. Um, so I, I'm putting it out there. I'm coming into this as sort of a virgin. All right. So maybe kind of a. I won't keep you for more than an hour. Sorry if you give me your undivided attention. But uh, it's all started with Doctor No in 1960, 1962 with this unknown sexy Sean Connery. And from Russia with Love continued there, from there 1963. Are you about to go through every single film? <laughs> no, I don't yep. know. This, this is country oh, we are talking about. He is, about. trust me, he is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We're going to be here even tomorrow. Okay, Gold, Goldfinger. And um, what do we have after that? I think it then was... It's Thunderball. Th- th- Thunderball? Yeah. Wow. Where's your line? Trust, trust, Kayla, man. Um, Carrie, I'm sorry. I I forgot the line. Uh, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the, the line is, what's happening? What's going on? Service you right, Carrie. What's happening? What's going on? <laughs> I don't know. Could it be the front doorbell? Okay. Uh, I hope the two new guests are still here. <laughs> we're, still, we're still here, yeah. <laughs> Are we talking about No Time to Die? <laughs> yeah, I was, was going to say, we, I'm counting off the decades on my fingers here. <laughs> Kari. See, this is, this is a bit like my party piece. I, I, I don't really have any special talents, but yeah, yeah. I can recite yeah. the James Bond films and years, af- even after three martinis. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the directors and the DPs or whatever. Uh, but Henry, And the composers. Wait. and Okay. 
Goldeneye, the more underrated world is divided. Oh my god, you can't help yourself. Skyfall, Spectre. And now we're finally here. No time to die. I thought I liked listing things. We're going to have no time left at this rate. We're under a tornado watch in Oklahoma. Like, a tornado might hit my house by the time we get to the end of this film. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm this, have to leave I, to go to my shelter. Can, can I, I was going to say, can, you are aware that I once recorded with the Really 007 Podcast Boys, and the edited version was ten and a half hours long when we talked about Diamonds oh. of Forever. So, we, so <laughs> the, the, the original cut was about 16 hours, so thank God they cut it down. So I can talk for England. So we, we're just going to... I think we're going to have to be a little bit more um, uh, right. restrained than doing yeah. scene by scene. Yeah, well, let's try that. So here's the topic for you. Treatment of women and gender equality. What did you think about this this whole thing? Because I, I it think was a huge. Lisa's got to start here. Yeah, it was kind of a huge talking point before the film came out. And when I came to the theater and saw the film, I felt that there was nothing really that special about it. Like all, all this hula below about the thing, and then of course the treatment is. I I think it's 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 great, but it's not like in your in your face, which is which is what I actually really liked about the film that that you know it it feels really natural and not kind of forced in in any way it's quite subtle but it's noticeable as well it, it's, yeah it's really I... subtle and quite non-existent hmm. well let's take lashana lynch's character lashana lynch is kind of the helm in the helm of many vehicles like the motorcycle or motorbike and also taking control of the flying app- apparatus when they go to the island and so James Bond is kind of taking the back seat here, and it, it it makes perfect sense in the motorcycle scene because it's it's her motorcycle she's <laughs> offering the ride, and you know it's just it's not like like get the hell off from the, from the driver's seat, Bond. I'm gonna take over or anything like that. Do do people really have that much? Is masculinity that fragile? that people have anxiety about being driven by a woman. No. Because, you know, they're, they're, I mean, Sean Connery was driven by a woman all the time. I and know, yeah. I'm, I'm just waiting for there to be a story in the next couple of days. I, I, um, I, I read the making of book today. I, um, a shop in, in the city where I live um, had put it on sale early, so I couldn't resist. So I'm expecting a story at some point in the next few days when the clickbait crowd get hold of this book and start, you know, teasing it apart for as many different articles as they possibly can. Because one of the things that uh, Kerry Fukunaga says was in the original draft of the script was that actually in the car chase scene, um, or at least in part of the pre-titles, Madeline was driving the Aston Martin DB5. So I thought, I thought that was quite interesting that the film might have started with her driving an Aston Martin. And mm. I presume, you know, we haven't said anything about this, but I presume we are going there with spoilers. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the film ends with her driving an Aston Martin. So I would have been intrigued to see how that kind of, that aspect of the circular narrative might have played out. But really, just because a woman's in the driving seat, do people feel threatened? Well, I didn't even pay attention to it until Carrie mentioned it I just right it, it seemed to be yeah. a huge huge deal for some people on Twitter that's the some the people need feel. to grow up yeah but also it's but it's not as if she does anything in the driver's seat like for me 
I think that Nomi is an interesting character. I think they were mm. very conservative with how what they gave her to do, right? She's supposed yeah. to be the other 007, and yes, she drives, but she's not driving in a chase sequence. She's not doing evasive maneuvers. She's not trying to outrun anybody. She's in, in the driver's seat, but she's not necessarily doing much, and Bond has always been challenged and impressed by women who have been in the driver's seat. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting with Madeline Swan in the pre-credit sequence, I get that she's not driving, but she's sort of in Tracy DiVincenzo from Honor Majesty's Secret Service seat. Mm. Only this time the car has bulletproof windows. And so the attempt at her life and the constant shots being put at the window to try to kill her and make her be the deceased bride, um, who in this case is pregnant, uh, and wearing white, so she's at least wearing the, the bridal attire, um, I found that it worked better to make that type of illusion if she was the one who was not driving. But it is interesting that the film does end with her driving away into the sunset, telling a story, knowing the importance of, of cars in general, but this car specifically to, to the world of Bond. Mm. What about this whole tampon gate? Let's call it that. Because there was like a huge... It can only be described as tampon gate because b before the movie... Uh, Lashana Lynch, I understand she threw this uh, kind of suggestion to the screenwriters, I think mainly Phoebe Waller-Bridge, that maybe we should have like a scene where some kind of transition material, whatever it was supposed to be, to have like the chains of tampon in one scene. But that's Yeah, yeah. That, but that I've never... This is completely passed me by. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And nothing like this happened in the movie as far as I could see. There was one toilet scene with the two ladies, but I, I don't know what was the kind of suggestion, what was going to happen there. But what would be the harm of realizing that people menstruate? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it does take up one week out of every month. And mm -hmm. there is such a taboo in talking about menstruation and lots of people menstruate. And so normalizing the fact that this is a, a function and an experience, and it is a conversation thing, oftentimes in bathrooms. Do you, do you happen to have a sanitary mm. pad? Like these are actual mm. conversations that, that do have, and these are conversations sometimes that certain people feel more comfortable having than, than others. And so, I mean, I, I get what she's saying. Like, can we just like normalize, you know, mm. different things? But I don't think, I mean, I, I, I don't just like burning a bra was just like a flippant comment that happened outside of an event. And then it became like this big thing, like feminists burn bras. Nobody burned a bra. I have a feeling it could have just been like a joke that happened somewhere. And then people just kind of run with it, but there's nothing just throwing it out there. There's nothing wrong. If you menstruate and there's nothing wrong with, with utilizing sanitary uh, uh, products and having conversations about it. I think we need to mainstream and normalize that more. Absolutely. So that's and at least my a, opinion. If there's a natural way to bring it into the story, if it was just Madeline and Nomi in the, in the bathroom or whatever, then it fit the scene, then, mm -hmm. no, you know, great. But, yeah, so, I, no, I, this, this is complete news to me. So were there some people getting angry about it? Yeah, very angry. Um, and... Well, I wasn't angry, but I'll be completely honest. I was kind of kind of worried about these comments because it it, it felt like this this there's very little way for this to come off as like naturally on screen. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, I don't want the film to be making some kind of a 
statement statement like visibly a statement and then distracting you from the movie just some ordinary everyday things yes if you can kind of show it in a in a way that it it would kind of fit in a movie and it's it's not like they're going to be issuing q issue tampons that explode or anything like that it's just going to be <laughs> which it actually just, be really cool yeah though, that actually that actually it. would God. be really cool but <laughs> You know, I, I'm sure there would have. You know, it's a writer's issue, isn't it? If they could have, if they, I'm sure they could have naturalistically brought it in if they wanted to. But, and yeah. that that's quality writing. But, yeah, it, yeah, it's the same with any of these things. It, um, Lisa used the word normalize. Um, I I like the term as well. Usualize. So it's just particularly in particularly in queer theory, we tend to use the term usualize just to make things very matter of fact. And I don't know if anyone else has got any views about the um, LGBT representation in this movie, which, like with most Bond movies, is incredibly minimalistic unless mm-hmm. you look at the coding. Now, I know that I know that Q is um, preparing a what looks like a romantic meal for a man. Mm-hmm. Um, disappointingly, in the making of book, they do refer to it as Q's friend. Um, but, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, there's definite possibilities there. And I don't, I, I personally, I, I'd like to think it isn't just queer baiting, but it's that kind of usualizing the fact that Q is about to have a romantic meal with a man and they use the he pronoun that that's, that's, I think, I, I actually think in its small way that is quite game changing. Just just doing in that almost nonchalant way, which I think a lot of media really needs to aspire to. I think sometimes because things are so inequitable, we do need to make a big statement. But at the same time, we need to be just just treating things as as they are in real life. You know, men have dates with men. Shock horror. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what anyone else thinks about that. Yeah, I, I, I agree that uh, this whole... Uh, introduction of kind of Q's sexuality was it was brought in such a way that it was really natural and there was nothing kind of off about it and and I think it's great that we have more of this presentation in the films. I just think it's ridiculous that we're living in the, the this you know twenty twenty one or I know this film was supposed to be released twenty nineteen, and you know they're not referring to like I'm sure we all do in our workplaces or our friendship circles to people who are in relationships with people of the same sex. It just it just seems that there's you know I know the world about Bond is an outlandish fantasy, but if we <laughs> It's a real outlandish fantasy if queer people don't exist in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Q's friend, really? Yeah, I'm not sure it was a denial. It was it was a quote from Michael G. Wilson, and I think he was kind of uh, maybe hedging a little bit. But um, oh. yeah, but I, I, don't, I don't see it as a denial necessarily. It still opens up all those possibilities. Right. Sometimes when you are first seeing somebody and somebody asks what you're doing, Mm. you might refer to them as your friend. I'm just saying like that happens in a broad sense in general, but I do love this. I, the, the, the idea of instead of normalizing, usualizing, but I usually refer to it also like in my work as like the power of unremarkability. When something mm. just is is allowed to ex- exist on screen, right? It, it matters yeah. that that we have representation on screen. But when we're not like pointing and like putting signs and trying to define and explain, just allowing things to be 
is such a, a very powerful thing. Now, it's a very small mm. moment, and I would love to see more of those types of moments in films in general um, and, and positive moments, right, in, in, in film in a broader sense. But I love the power of unremarkability and how it was utilized, whether you're going to have a black woman being 007 or you're going to have Q and his relation. I'm going to extrapolate Q and his boyfriend. <laughs> I'm just going yeah. there. Um, yeah. uh, in, in this film, I thought it was I thought it was great. And again, doesn't need explanation. It's just there. We all accept it and we just continue to move forward. And I, I think that that's really powerful, at least in my opinion, through my reading of it. I, I love that phrase, Lisa. I'm going to start using that one. Credited to yourself, mm -hmm. of course. Uh, um, <laughs> power of unremarkability. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that, uh, that is definitely, I think, what we need to aspire to. As a gay man, um, women have, um, throughout cinema history, been sometimes points of identification for for gay viewers who may not kind of map themselves onto the alpha male masculinity and that kind of thing so you know a lot of bond girls are quite queer icons um particularly gay icons and i found the presentation of madeline in this film so much more impressive than i'm sure i'm not alone in this so much more impressive than Spectre, um, I get really annoyed with the mm. scene in Spectre where they both escape Blofeld's hideout and she, even though it's been established that she knows how to use weaponry very well, she doesn't pick up a flipping gun <laughs> and start shooting the men. And um, I've got uh, one of my female friends hates that part of that film as well. She's like, Madeline, grab a gun. And I know that, Lisa, in your work, you've explored in detail that um, regressive representation of gender from Skyfall onwards. Is that kind of too much of a simplification of your argument? Or is that... Because it's definitely something that, for me, I, I kind of... Pref I know we're going to get onto our rankings of Craig films in a bit, but I, I, I struggle with Skyfall onwards a little bit because of the women with less agency yeah i would say skyfall there's a regression in in mm. representation i referred to like specter and i would probably put no time to die in many ways as being like a reversionist meaning it's reverting yeah. back to like older times so yeah, i agree i read madeline swan as being a composite of all these qualities of women that came beforehand and which i think that's the reason why i struggled to connect with her inspector because mm. she's just like mm. this puzzle that's put together and we're told we're supposed to think she's a match for Bond rather than seeing her fall in love with Bond, seeing him fall in love. Like, Absolutely. I don't feel anything between them because I've been told this is it and, and that's just the way to go. And I feel if I'm really going to be, like, thinking about her narrative arc, I see in her, this is, again, this is a very specific lens. As somebody who studies action women of the 80s and the 90s, mm -hmm. usually there's some sort of explanation as to why women are heroic. You don't get that with Paloma and you don't get that with Nomi. But when it comes to Madeline Swan, there's such an overarching narrative of she's a daughter following in her father's footsteps. So that explains why she knows how to use a gun. And she's a mother who's going to protect her child, which is why she uses the gun. But there's this, this theory called the disconnect and and I teach this to my students where I'm like women of like the the 80s and the early 90s are not allowed to be um, maternal and violent in the same moment. And if you look at mm. someone like Sarah Connor in Terminator 2, she's a really good example where you can be capable and competent in action and shoot the gun, but that's a different moment than when you're holding your child where you are ineffectual in action. And so there's this idea that the desire to take a life versus make a life or create life are very different things. And so when I looked at her character, 
There's a lot that I like about her, but I felt it was just like Daniel Craig's Bond is this older version of like 1980s masculinity, which I, which I can really push through with the natural man and a whole bunch of imagery and no time to die, really rounding it out. I feel as though she is connecting to the same type of, of heroic model that he's also tapping into. Oh gosh, I wonder if I could write a paper looking at the Terminator <laughs> no time to die in models um, of like heroism. Because, you know, when you look mm -hmm. at Terminator 2, Arnold, Sch oh my gosh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is presented as being like the best father for John Connor mm. and he learns how to become more emotional from being a killer. They take out the chip in his head and then you have Sarah Connor struggling with her emotions because she wants to protect her child but in the moments that she's protecting her child she can't be like emotionally connected. Anyways, I'm, I'm going on a tangent but I no, think I, there's a paper there. I, I, as you were talking I was thinking of the scene where Bond, which is one of my favourite scenes in the whole film, the scene in, Nor in the Norway forest shot mm -hmm. in Scotland, uh, but the scene in the Norway forest um, where he's holding the child, Mathilde, mm -hmm. um, and I I couldn't help have, I'm sure you've seen it, but John Woo's hard-boiled, the hospital yeah. scene where um, Chow Yun-Fat is carrying the baby through the hospital while shooting a gun at the same time, and I thought that was, yeah, we've kind of seen that occasionally, but that's the only other time I can think of. Um, outside of comedy anyway, where you've got a action hero who is firing a gun while also clutching a young person. So uh, I'm sure there are others, but... I think there's so, so many reasons coming back to Madeline why Madeline doesn't work in Spectre. Well, there's a lot of things to discuss why Spectre doesn't work. And actually a lot of it is still a bit of a mystery to me. There, there's so much to crack in that film. It's a really exciting film to analyze in many ways. But... So Inspector Madeline is also, I feel, written in a way that she's kind of distant and, I don't know, heartless, but she wants to keep a bit of a distance and there's some kind of an aura of, of, there's something mystical about this woman. We don't know too much about her and they kind of like to keep it that way. And also the problem of introducing the character in around the halfway mark of the film doesn't give too much to, to work on to build the kind of emotional side of things. Inspector, but there's more, I think. Uh, much more. Much more, Roger Moore. But in, Daniel Craig might be playing James Bond also in a way that I, I don't think he means to look a bit bored sometimes on, on screen, but that's kind of the idea that you, you can draw from that. But it could also be that he's trying something different. It could also be that he was fucking pissed off because his leg was broken to pieces. Sensible answer, Gary. Thank you. But, um, and I think there's been a lot of development even since Spectre times after all this Me Too movements and what, you know, Donald Trump and everything that has been happening between Spectre and now. Uh, Inspector, I found it a little bit not so proper when Daniel Craig is pushing Monica Bellucci uh, in front of the front of the mirror. And these kind of moments are completely uh, absent in No Time to Die. What do you think, guys? I think the Monica Bellucci scene is the best scene in the whole of Spectre, personally, but <laughs> that might just be me. Okay, didn't you feel that it was kind of um, inappropriate to <laughs> to do that? Even though Monica Bellucci's character goes along with it, uh, well, you could do that analogy to yeah, and many she's in scenes. a vulnerable she's in a vulnerable position, but also mm. the scene is for better or worse, impossibly cool. The way that Bond dispatches the villains with the silencer, and you know, he's 
it's yeah for, for me it was one of the redeeming parts of spectre but you know other opinions exist i think it's i think it's impossible to sort of talk about the change of tone without yeah talking about sort of the cultural changes that have happened mm-hmm. like, you, like you mentioned i think things like the times up movement donald trump's presidency have affected cinema have affected culture and media and i i don't think that we can go back i mean god knows knock on wood that we don't but i think it would be difficult to go back to a series in which the protagonist is uh, a man who conquers women i I think is the, (laughs) the the best way i can say it um he seduces and conquers them and they're very much objectified in his view and I don't think that behavior would will stand uh, anymore. So this sort of post-Time's Up bond, I think, is the bond of the future. And, and that's for the, for the good, both for good and for the good. Yeah, I think I, it does I, raise a very interesting issue, though, about, I mean, this film was made late-ish. 2010 so as the me too movement was was coming to the fore and it's been a question i've asked you know is is sexuality and conquest still a core component of the james bond brand it was for I would say the first 20 films, I think the model of masculinity, heroic masculinity has changed across the Daniel Craig era. I think that when you see the scenes of sort of the women who play those typical roles, which who tend to be secondary characters. So I'm thinking of, you know, Monica Bellucci in Spectre. Um, I'm thinking of um, uh, Strawberry Field in Quantum of Solace, Solange Mm. Dimitrios, Mm. even Severine. These tend to be secondary women who are exploited. Uh, their bodies are, are, in a sense, occupied by Bond. And many of them are killed off in their films and shown to be disposable. And oftentimes, the strong women who appear in those films, um, we talk about them, but we don't talk about this lingering aspect from you know the previous generation of, of filmmaking, right? And it is that question of, is this something that is, is this a long-term quality? And when you look at a film like No Time to Die, Bond is only with Madeline Swan. I don't know what he does off screen, but he doesn't seem like he's like, he's been sleeping with a bunch of people. When Nomi talks about where's the, the, the bedroom, Bond's like, oh, like he has a shocked look on his face. And when Paloma goes to measure him up for a suit or tuxedo or whatever he was wearing... He was like, like, are we getting it on? Like, is this your room? And she's like, what are you talking about, right? You, you can tell that he's confused uh, because times are changing. He's changing. Even the model is changing. And I think this Bond is very self-reflexive. Um, and so, like, this is the first Bond film where you don't have that, that, that archetype. And I will tell you, it's really refreshing that Bond is not necessarily sleeping with every single person that he meets. It also makes his relationship with Madeline Swan seem that much more meaningful. So when he looks at her and says, like, I've loved you for the last 10 years, I believe it. Because part of me thinks he's been celibate for the last 10 years because of the love that that he had but it does raise the question as to whether sex conquest um if these are which are core parts of of spy culture and james bond has Mm -hmm. has played a huge role in really pushing this idea of sex espionage forward right and there's various iterations in the past and i you know i know you mentioned from russia with with love but i mean that's a really good example of of 
sex being part of the job. We're not even sure if yeah. either partner really wants to have sex with the, with the other person, at least at first, and it's being filmed and there's no consent there. So there's a lot of stuff going on in there. But this yeah. tends <laughs> to be normalized in our spy culture. And I think what the Me Too and Time's Up movements have done have really raised that question in a general sense of like, is consent necessary, which it is, um, and how do we then move forward in our media culture, let alone our workplaces, in ways that 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 demonstrate safe spaces? And is our media culpable in um, really encouraging this notion of rape culture by presenting images where consent doesn't exist? We're presenting that a no doesn't actually mean no. It can be changed to a yes with enough force um, or coercion. So I think that there's a lot of questioning going on here about the Bond brand. And in the next iteration of Bond, however they choose to like reimagine the Bond franchise, it will be interesting to see where they fall because they have just shown that they can do a movie with compelling women and, and think about Paloma. Paloma, everybody seems to be loving Paloma, and yet he doesn't sleep with Paloma. There can be really strong, capable, a, a charismatic and appealing women in a Bond film that, that don't necessarily have to sleep with him. There's a great reversal in the Paloma scene. As you were, if you were describing it, Lisa, I thought of the equivalent scene in The Man with the Golden Gun, which I, as I say, I watched earlier today, mm -hmm. uh, again, where she, he's about to get, he's essentially about to get naked in front of her. And it's a reversal of, and there's a scene in Thunderball as well, um, where he, he, uh, Fiona Volpe's in the bath and she asks for something to put on and he gives her a shoes. And mm. then it's the same thing in Man with the Golden Gun where Andrea Anders is in the shower and he doesn't really give her anything and he expects her to basically stand naked in front of him. And I really love that part of Paloma's introduction because it's the, it's the gender reversal of that that we've we've all been waiting for over the years. And of course, she's polite enough to turn around, um, which Bond isn't necessarily polite enough to do so in when it was the other way around. Can you guys consider the pre the previous M who was... Judy Dench? Yeah, I wouldn't say she was a secondary character. She was a quite a strong character. No, she, she absolutely... Films. And this is an interesting point. We have discussed um, previously with, with Henrik this, this point. Was it Inspector episode or whatever? But in, in GoldenEye, she comes off as uh, like a very power, powerful female character who is yeah. constantly, you know, showing Pierce Brosnan's James Bond that, you know, this is the new times and you're a sexist, mis misogynist dinosaur, blah, blah, blah. And then in Tomorrow Never Dies, there's still a bit of, little bit of that kind of the, the leader attitude type of thing. But then we get to the world is not enough where she definitely, she needs to be saved and she seems to be really worried and scared like most uh -huh. of most of her performance. Then we get to die another day and uh, it's it's kind of the same thing. Like she's she's not the leader in the scenes anymore. Like even M Michael Madsen kind of overpowers her. Yeah, and, and Judy Dench as M, when it comes to the female presentation in, in the entire porn franchise, I think that's as hard. And basically, that, that is reaching the top when it com comes to the female presentation. And basically, everything else I do find a bit lackluster. But no time to die, you know. Still, we have. Just doesn't most... do enough. Well, it has some of no, the <laughs> it has some of the most fleshed out uh, female characters in the entire franchise. I would say there's still something that they could work more with. But it, it, it has like 
like two, two fleshed out female characters. Madeline's one who has the advantage of one previous film already behind her as a character. Mm. And then the female 007. And that's it. We, we have Paloma and what do we know about her? They're not really that much. There well, is some, some mm. fleshing out, yeah. But I really wouldn't count, for example, Paloma as the most fleshed out female character in the well, franchise. At least she gets to shine a lot of her character in those whatever five, seven minutes that she's on screen. And yeah. uh, everybody like that, all, seems to be that everybody is like going crazy on Twitter about uh, Paloma as a character. And, that and I can't she... understand why. Like, honestly, it completely escapes me. And I was fearing that this is somewhere something where we will come into blows, me and perhaps the rest of the cast of today's episode. Well, but... I, I didn't think about it too much when I was watching it and when, when she went away. But I, I really liked that kind of a comedic aspect uh, that was given to her character. And it doesn't happen too often that, that, that I could tell that you have a female character and she would actually be also written to be a funny character. And this works so well. And it's, it's kind of... Yeah. She, she reminded me most of, and this is a bit of a left field, but she reminded me of Catherine Hepburn in huh. screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s where she had a sort of innocence about her, but did an amazing job all the same and managed to, everything kind of turned out all right in the end. But I don't know. I don't know if anyone else sort of got that. It's that sort of wide-eyed innocence, but also she really does know what she's doing sort of appear uh, part of the character. Yeah, the, there's this kind of a turning of expectations and, you know, you hear that she has had only only three weeks of uh, training and then uh, she surprises everybody in the audience basically by kicking ass. I mean, the director has said that there's there's actually no reason for her to exist in the film. So she was quite a late addition and it was him who brought her on that Bond doesn't actually really need a fixer in that scene. But, you know whatever we'll go with it and i think the film is a lot richer for it yeah it is much richer for it and i would say that those minutes that she is on screen she has more character and kind of interesting quality than lashana lynch in the entire movie mm-hmm. i think she's the bright spot of the film if you want yeah. my opinion on it and i feel as though when she talks about being inexperienced this could be her feeling out bond she has no idea who bond is right Mm. and what he's about this could be an aspect of her personality or it could be this trope that's utilized by a lot of action women you see it in charlie's angels you see it in hong kong action films marianne don refers to it as a masquerade of femininity where you um put on where you wear your womanliness as a mask and you uh appear overtly feminine and Mm. you hide your possession of traditionally masculine traits and violence is a traditionally masculine trait and so when she does start shooting and kicking and doing everything on screen it does come as a surprise but for me it was a welcome surprise Uh, you know Nomi might be the 007 but she doesn't really have any physical action in scenes like she's always shooting a gun or laying on her side she's not engaging in in combat and action choreography and that's something that i love i mean i love atomic blonde i like anything where women are kicking and punching and fighting Mm -hmm. and to see her do it in that dress, in those heels. And when her gun doesn't work, she's hitting 
people with the gun and mm -hmm. she's killing them and she's so incredibly delightful and what she does is she also brings out of Daniel Craig a lighter side of James Bond which you don't see in any other James Bond film where it looks like he's the James Bond I've always wanted him to be and they're drinking and there's a joke and there's a quip and they're able yeah. to go on in a sense a standalone mission in the middle of, of, of the film that's not weighted down by any of the drama at the beginning or the end of the film and so for me it was just like oh my gosh this is a breath of fresh air and what I've wanted mm. in the Daniel Craig mm. era for the last five films. And so just based on my personal preferences of who Bond is and what I like to see when it comes to women on screen in action films, that entire sequence was like, that was the film for me. I was like, okay, this is what I, what I, what, why I'm here. I think, I think Zach, if we want to talk about more about the female characters, uh, Zach just might be the one who has the most recent viewing experience of Spectre, I don't know. But you did watch it recently, and what do you think, Zach, why Leia Sadu's character Madeleine works so much better in No Time to Die, or does it? That's a great question. First, I just want to second uh, Lisa. Yeah, I think that uh, Ana de Armas is, she's the bright, shining spot <laughs> in the middle of this film. Uh, and I, as soon as she left i was like can, can we go back can, 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 can we go back just yeah. like just five more minutes just just real quick real quick um she is delightful um leia i i don't know she it, it is frustrating I, I can't remember was it tom or was it david who mentioned like why does she use a fucking gun we know that she can and in times when she needs to yeah. why doesn't she said so that that is i agree that is frustrating um to fit this mold of this damsel in distress, I suppose some trope that has to be checked off a, uh, a to-do list or something. It's better in this film for sure. She definitely takes a little more ownership and has a little more autonomy, but I don't think we, I don't think we quite got there in terms of action, but in terms of heart, I think we do. Um, she, I think Lisa, you also mentioned she's the only person that, that Bond has sex with. I would even go so far as to say makes love with. Mm. Um, <laughs> she she has become this emotional center to the film. I think this, again, I haven't seen many of these films, but this one felt very emotional for me. There were multiple moments where I thought, oh, this doesn't feel like a traditional Bond film, um, yeah. at least the ones that I've seen, because there was so much emotion. So, so did No Time to Die save Spectre as a movie. <laughs> Any thoughts? No. It made it worse. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I didn't think it was possible, but it did. <laughs> I think there's more emotion, more all kinds of expressions, and uh, frankly, more to do for her in the film. In No Time to Die. She's a great actor. I mean, if you're going to... It's the same... It's she like the is. Judy Dench principle. If you put Judy Dench in a Bond film, you better give her something to do. And I feel mm. that with Leia Sado, they didn't give her... Look, Spectre is, is a lacking film, in my opinion, not because of casting, but because of script writing, right? Mm. You have... Um, Christoph Waltz, who is just this deflated Blofeld. Why? Because there was nothing for him to do. There was there was there was no meat and potatoes and anything for him to grasp onto. This wasn't a Quentin Tarantino script. You might love Tarantino, you might hate him, but Tarantino at least gives his actors 
a script to work with, right? And I don't think Leia Sadu, and I don't think Daniel Craig, I don't think the film was set up for them to do what it was trying to accomplish material-wise. But in this film, because it's mirroring Honor Majesty and grow, yeah. and we learn and grow and fall in love as well, here there's a lot of breathing room for Madeline. Out space for her to learn and grow, yeah. and we learn and grow and fall in love as well. Here there's a lot of breathing room for Madeline Sado to fill up those spaces. And, and look, I was not a fan of Madeline Swan Inspector, so I'm not, I'm not a lover of the character, but I felt for her, especially after the second watch. Like, Leia Sado kills every scene that she's in with the emotion. She is this emotional barometer going through and pushing us through, um, and especially the ending. The ending is powerful. Yes, it's Daniel Craig looking into the screen and doing his thing, but it's also powerful because of her and her emotional reactions. And, and if you want to talk about who's the heartbeat of the film, I feel as though she is really being this heartbeat uh, moving, moving forward because she's been very steadfast. She's very true to this idea that she loves Bond and she loves her child and that carries her through from the start to the end. And there you go. It's kind of like Daniel Craig um, replying to George Lazenbean, that one The Guardian article where Daniel Craig said that On Her Majesty's Secret Service is one of the best films because it, it has like this, I don't know, paraphrasing, emotional core because of the love story. I think the pre-titles was a masterstroke. Again, it was something that was completely the brainchild of the director to I film that it. entire sequence in Norway, um, which um, I did think, that, that it's got a long story short, there was a bit of a kerfuffle at the start of our screening, which means that we actually had to move screen. So I thought, even though the MGM logo had come up, that they might even have put the wrong film on because there's this kooky guy, like, not kooky, but there's this disconcerting kind of horror movie of aspect of the beginning of No Time to Die. The only reason I knew it was No Time to Die is because I knew that the French song um, Dans la Vie en Dormi was playing at the start. Uh, that, okay, we are in the right film then, but it didn't feel like a Bond film for the first five minutes. And, uh, really and, that's, a, that. and that's a great thing, yeah, because, yeah. you know, I, I'm definitely in that camp of you should always keep trying new things. But I think that pre-titles will, when I re-watch Spectre, I think when when they relate that scene of her, you know, going to the cupboard with the bleach and getting a gun and starting shooting, I think it will make me think of that scene. And I think it will make that scene in Spectre more impactful. You just can't please everyone. It's a shame. There, I see a lot of people just not liking the pre-titles because it doesn't feel like a Bond movie in the beginning. And I just found it great that they can ha have, like, you know, different tones to the series. Yeah, absolutely. Was this the longest pre-title of the Bond franchise? Uh, I'm not right. sure. It's, it, yeah, it's about it, 24 it minutes. Must be. Yeah. The World is Not Enough is something like 15 about minutes. 15, yeah. yeah. And Daniel Craig's performance, um, I think it's the, the most, he feels kind of energetic and more relaxed in this film than in any other film. I think there's more depth to his performance. I think the writing helps a great deal. One of my favourite scenes is the um, the beginning, at least, of the encounter with Blofeld and how he is quite almost nonchalant. He's sort of channeling Sean Connery in Diamonds of Forever almost when he confronts Blofeld, <laughs> which is one of my favourite scenes in Diamonds of Forever about halfway through. <laughs> um, that scene was um, one of those edited by, um, edited by Phoebe Waller-Bridge and I definitely think that you can you can you can sense her influence in the, that that I just think the dialogue is so fantastic there, and 
Craig is having a ball at that point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Christoph Waltz got too much uh, different tasks or things to do in, in No Time to Die compared to Spectre. I think it's pretty much the same thing as in Spectre. And I, it just doesn't doesn't work for me. What's this Tarantino movie where he plays the Nazi? Inglorious, but um, I can't say it because I'm a teacher, so I'm not going to swear on the yeah. podcast. But you know which one I mean. Yeah, that Inglorious thing. Um, <laughs> I think he just is playing the same character that is in in that. But Inspector is completely non-physical. He's just playing these games with these odd drilling devices and always keeping like a like an arm's length to to James bond and i think that's kind of the problem with the the body of no time to die as as well there's not to do much physicality well a little scuffle by the end but henrik what what if you think about the bad guy in no time to die well let's talk about the hench guy well i found him Cyclop. not to be anything special and i found and, that and the same goes for mostly the bad guys no Time to Die is the case where you have overbloated script and you have like two bad guy, bad guy plot lines going on and it tries to play these plot lines against each other and have like this, this crossroads situation but pretty much nothing comes from it. The, the Spectre thing. In, in fact, if something, it, it just manages to downplay the entire Spectre. I have this huge grudge against Spectre and I want to take revenge on Spectre. And there was a, really a lot of material there. And then the whole plotline just deteriorates. It becomes your typical Bond film villain plotline. I want to take over the world and destroy humanity for, well, basically just your average Christian symbolism, which is something that the film is more interested fleshing out and toying with than with its female characters, which was supposed to be the major selling point of the post-Me Too James Bond. So from my end, bad guys, the main henchman, hen, henchman kind of forgettable, Spectre underused, really disappointing and the main bad guy works well at first and then turns to absolute garbage but i just i feel as though somewhere along the way a lot of the descriptor stuff got lost and i feel as though the villainous characters got lost in the process and it was more like spectacle and oh no there's this dangerous technology but like that's where they left me. And the middle part of the film, I found very, like a little bit dull. That's where you just needed to just, just figure it out. Just tell me what's going on, how it's going on, why this is really important. And I would have loved to have seen um, this auctioning off, like this idea mm. that the boats are coming in. So, so don't just say it, visualize it, have a screen and show all the different people from these different countries and nations coming in. And you know, the docking area where you're getting ready to set it up. Mm. And then I would have been like, okay, this is an imminent threat because here come the boats. But it's just, it's an off, like it's a little line that the boats are coming in. And that's not enough to make it so pressing that you need to blow up the layer and bond in the end. Like there was just like, there was a disconnect between what was going on. And, and I think just to like really push this point, so many times in the script, the writers are like, 
hitting us over the head like a whack-a-mole. Do you know what the whack-a-mole game is where there's a little mole that comes yeah. up and you hit it with a, it's a carnival game and you hit it with a paddle, right? And we call it whack-a-mole. And I feel like they're like, oh, your Majesty's Secret Service or the 007, the two 007s, that's the whack-a-mole. Like just over and over and over. And when you do focus so much on like, berating me with that stuff you're occupying precious time in the film that could have been utilized to really flesh out narratively what is going yeah. on so that when you do have the end of this film i want to feel the pressing danger i want to know that there's an imminent threat and all of that is just sort of sideline or or we're just expected to just buy into it and believe it i didn't feel the intensity i didn't feel the urgency which is what i really want to happen in a bond film at the end of the day he died for personal reasons but like i need to know that there's also like a like an imminent threat because that's technically mm. your job and at this point he's reinstated so this is yeah. this is technically your job yeah, i so, agree so, with you on yeah. everything else except with in in the face of disfiguration which i felt that this film from all the porn films this is the one that uses uses its bad guys face of disfiguration the most Granted, it, it uses it only to play off Christian imagery and Christian symbolism, but at least it, it does that. Like, this is once again something that, where, where you give it a credit for doing the bare minimum, but at least the face of disfiguration this time played into something, unlike basically any other James Bond film. I... But where does the disfiguration even come from? We don't even right. get an explanation for why it looks it's the like poisoning that. for when he was a child. But you're right. It kind of, it, it, it really the neater part of the story would have been that he has some form of scarring from his encounter with young Madeline. That would that would have made so much more sense to the story. Oh. But before we go even deeper in, I think there's so many so many things to touch on what you guys were talking about. So first of all, the movie is like two hours and 40 minutes, 48 minutes, almost three Why? hours long. And I think that the, the film is throwing so many things at you that you never get bored, that's for sure. You know, that there's so much to process, especially as a Bond fan after this film. I could imagine this film feeling kind of lackluster because it for a person who is not a Bond fan because there's so much of the history and so much of tying all the loose ends. And this is where I, I think the, the film has also a problem with the, with the fans because there's there's so much going on and just this kind of... Uh, you, you have to solve all these plot lines that were kind of left loose after Spectre or not really even... And, and and the film wants to throw those all at you. But it's not kind of communicating a very coherent narrative structure for, for the characters. For example, if we, if we go back to something like Casino Royale, which is almost like a masterpiece in, in the way that it tells, you know, the character development and the whole story works. And it's pretty simple. You know, just a couple of assholes, assholes play poker at the casino and they make that interesting. And here... At the point, though, that in a Bond movie, and I, I completely take... I agree with everything Lisa said. I, I and everyone else has said, really, about that we don't get the intensity from the villain's plot. And yep. But if you look at any Bond movie, I mean, if you take The Living Daylights, which I think is the... I always think is the ultimate extreme of... It, you know, it takes you about five Complexes. viewings to work out what on earth is going on. And we, they're passing yeah. diamonds here and they've got marijuana here. No, heroin, sorry, here. And then they're hanging out the backs of planes. And when you were, 
Um, who's defecting what now? You know, it's that kind of, you know, I, you know, having watched that film so many times since a child, I can, of course, explain it properly. But as a kid, I was kind of like, okay, it moved. And I know, you know, they've said this since Dr. No, Bond movies move so quickly that you don't really have time to kind of stop and think about the story. I think, I think you have time in this one to stop and think about the story. And I think that might be, I, I say this might be a problem. I love this movie. I mean, I know we didn't get our opinions out right at the start here, but I do absolutely love this movie. As I say, I've only seen it once so far. So when you love something, you overlook its imperfections. So I'm being really nitpicky here, but for me, the cohesion comes from a thematic cohesion. And I know that I find the Sam Mendes two films a little bit pretentious in this regard they've really got explicitly articulated themes with a capital t in them you know these are almost literary works they've got the they, these upfront things but for me i thought i yeah i they are self-indulgent but i found thematically i found no time cohesive um and you know whether it's the best characterization of bond is debatable but I found that the well, in my mind, I've got kind of clear what the big theme is, and everything kind of pegs onto that, really. Yeah, I felt that the, you know this is not such a masterful film in in the way that it it tells its narrative compared to something like uh, Casino Royale, maybe even even Goldfinger, in a way that the, you know this is more of a fan service than like a movie that everybody can go to see. But I I really like the movie as well. You say it's interesting because I've got some friends who, um, in fact, one of our best friends, she had she hadn't seen a Bond film till three weeks ago, mm-hmm. at all. She'd never seen a Bond film at all, and so she somehow got into her thirties without watching a Bond film. Uh, and um, uh, we watched Casino Royale together, and her wife, um, she had only seen a couple of Bond films as well. Both of them were absolutely all over Casino Royale. Just yeah. thought like it was brilliant. And then um, our plan was to watch all of the other Daniel Craig films. We didn't uh, have time to do that. And partly they didn't get to, they didn't come to the screening where, which I saw it at because they'd actually booked a holiday. But they then just went to see No Time to Die. And they'd what bear in mind that one of them had only ever seen Casino Royale as a bomb film. They saw No Time to Die, and she absolutely loved it. Balled her eyes out at the end, as <laughs> I'm sure many of us did. So I don't know. I'm not sure it's as simplistic as this film works better for the fans. I know lots of you know David Mitchell wrote an article in the Guardian today, which I completely disagree with. That you know James Bond can't die. Um, and I'm just like I, I re- that's probably the, the 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 part that's dividing people more than any others. But it's not as clean as dividing it down the line of the hardcore fans think Bond shouldn't die and the the ingenues shouldn't you know don't think Bond should die. I don't think it's as clear cut as that. Just a couple of mentions from the past discussions, Henrik. I think that there is no need to create exactly memorable henchmen or, or or baddies in my opinion as long as they are interesting in other ways than facial disfiguration or something i i felt that the the cyclops is not on the par right the the primo guy you know obviously you can't compare him to something like jaws or odd job as like classic characters but you know i think that's the kind of the problem of the bond franchise nowadays because they try to 
do that thing again, even with Hinks. I don't really care for for Hinks, and I feel that it's just trying to do the same thing again that was already done millions of years ago. I think what they should be doing is just to create more realistic characters. And as I told to, I think, Lisa on, on, on Twitter when she was posting about something, that I think we should look for characters that are more realistic, like maybe Francisco Scaramanga, who is more more human. I think those baddies are the most interesting of the franchise and in movies in general. My uh, my favorite villain of the Craig era is actually Dominic Green. Yeah. And yeah, and he's go. the only unscarred villain. And mm. there was an explicit intention to... D- the scarring, I, I know I haven't said anything about this so far, but the scarring I find um, uh, very um, unsettling. Uh, I wrote about this quite a lot when I was tackling Dr. No. I thought I might as well do it because the, the presentation of disability in Dr. No, it's, it's yeah, it's uh, extremely, mm-hmm. extremely dodgy. Um, the thing that I think in terms of scarring that they've really missed a trick with, which, you know, hopefully when they do a hard reboot of this, I think it would go a little way to redress some of it, is that Bond himself is scarred in the books. And mm-hmm. it's always irked me that we've since I read the Fleming books as a teenager that we've never had a scarred bond and I think that would help I don't know what anyone else thinks on his face yeah on his mm. face yeah because like the Craig era he has scars on his body but not yeah. on his face not on his yeah. face yeah. no and as you have read some of those novels or, or the novels, I understand that James Bond actually dies in the novels. I haven't read all of them. No, he um, he dies at the end of From Russia With Love, but he was brought back sort of like Sherlock Holmes was brought back by Conan Doyle. And then he oh, uh, right. yeah, that, he dies yeah. at the end of You Only Live Twice, but it's he, he basically loses his memory and M writes his obituary, which is quoted in No Time to Die. Uh, but he lives as a Japanese fisherman for quite some time. So, yes, he sort of dies, but doesn't really die twice. Ish. He, he dies ish. <laughs> Let's insert this spoiler warning in the beginning of the episode, but in this mm. spoiler warning, I want to talk about this. So, James Bond dies. Uh, your thoughts, Lisa? Okay, let's be honest. <clears throat> I hated it. <laughs> when I first saw it, I hated the ending. I was upset. I felt betrayed by the franchise. I couldn't believe that they did this to me. <laughs> um, and this comes after, you know, uh, a long however many months of COVID. Haven't seen my family in like 20 months. Um, utilizing the Bond franchise as a source of nostalgia and comfort. Connecting with the Bond fan community. Being disappointed by all of the um, spaces and gaps and and uh, delays all, all along. And so here I am in a Bond film. It's finally here. I'm super excited and pumped to go. And this is how it ends. I was just not in a place emotionally prepared to handle it. Had I seen it in when it was supposed to come out pre-COVID, how would I have felt about it? I don't know. I may have had a very different reaction. When I watched it the second time, I thought it was a very emotional ending, but I still don't like it. I understand, look, I'm going to do research on this. I'm going to find out what was going on at the time. I understand other heroes were dying around the time. You've got Logan dying and Iron Man dying mm-hmm. and Black Widow dying. Like It seems to be all of our big heroes and superheroes are, are dying um, for the sake of the world or for personal stakes. Um, So it's definitely a thing that was happening in cinema at the time. I don't think I was as emotional watching Logan when it happened. I still cried at the end of Logan. That's fine. Um, 
But again, there's a daughter in there. So I think that there's parallel. I think there's a lot of parallels between Logan and No Time to Die. Um, So yeah, I mean, I have people messaging me all the time asking because they want to talk about the ending because they're not okay with the ending. And how do you feel about James Bond dying? And I feel as though from the things that I've read, this was Daniel Craig's stipulation for coming back and they worked backwards mm-hmm. for it. I think we there's a conversation to be had about the separation of an actor and the character that they play. I, I know Rami Malek had an interview where he said, the line between Daniel Craig and James Bond, it's razor thin, I couldn't tell. And I'm sitting there being like, you should be able to tell because it's a character. Um, and so yeah. I don't know how I feel about all of it. Maybe by my 30th watch, I'll have a different opinion. And just throwing it out there, I hated Casino Royale when I first watched it too. Like I was um, like, what is this garbage? He's not Pierce Brosnan. This is not what I signed up yeah. for. And now it's my favorite Bond film. So my emotional reaction to Bond films, I like the fact when I have a reaction because I ask, what am I reacting to? And I just utilize that as a stepping stone to analyze the film in a lot more detail. But um, that was that was me. And I don't think I'm alone in this reaction. I think there are a lot of people who are like, oh crap, this is not what I wanted. I yeah. just encourage them to go for a second viewing because it does hit differently. Everything smooths out more in the yeah. second watch. Yeah, M- Mr. Franklin, what do you think about this? Because there's so many things thrown around um, by the time when James Bond decides that he's not going to make it anymore. Yeah, first of all, he gets uh, three or four bullet hits to his body and then he gets infected with these uh, nanobots and then mm. he realizes that he has no time to get out of the island anymore but apparently he has plenty of time to die so what was it like wh- why why did he like did he give up because he can't hug anymore his uh, daughter or or his loved one did he remain on the island because he can't do that he decides that he cannot find any way around it maybe there could be some future technology that would allow him to get rid of the nanobots or somehow neutralize them well i mean it seems kind of ridiculous because it's a technology you could kind of reprogram them and that's it but i think it is about the thing that he well he has no time to get off the island that seems pretty clear well he had a busted leg Aside from anything else, the busted leg, so he couldn't get off the island. But did he have a busted leg as well? That, I think so. He was limping. Yeah, well, bullet shots can do that. <laughs> I guess. Um, I've never had it. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, um, it shouldn't have killed Bond off. I, I was just as shocked as Lisa. Why did they do that? I have a theory why. Please. Um, I, I. I <laughs> Oh, I do not want this to open up a whole new can of worms because I know we have to wrap up, you know, soon. But I think that fandom has become a a bit toxic um, over the last few years. And I think uh, rabid fans have a hard time separating actors from their characters. And Lisa, you you just said it. Uh, Logan, Iron Man, Black Widow. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them sort of did their run, they did their thing, and then dying in the film is their way for the actor to leave the role because, well, the character's dead, I can't come back. And it's a nice, clean way to say, sorry, fans, you won't get me anymore uh, because there's this ownership that, that some fans feel like they have over these characters. 
And I think this is this is the way we have to deal with this now because you can no longer just say, all right, and um, uh, Sean Connery did his bit, and now we're going to move on to no, Roger Moore, and then we're going to move on to Pierce, Pierce Brosnan. No, no, you got to kill him now because if not, then it's going to be, oh, my God, could you, can you believe he refuses to come back? I guess he doesn't care about us fans. We're the ones that put him there. I think we're going to get into that toxic fandom, but I think that that's my working theory. I, 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 well, I agree with all of that. Um, I uh, perhaps am I the only one who actually thought it was a really good idea to kill him? <laughs> I'm just checking before I carry on. Um, I'm personally. I think you're the only. Uh, <laughs> see, I I went in there and I thought there's a fifty fifty chance of Bond dying in this film. I don't know if anyone else felt the same, but I, I from I, I had avoided spoilers um, right up until about five minutes before the film, and my auntie turned up and told me uh, that she just heard on the radio that James Bond died. So that was great. Oh, so I I knew right at the start of the film that he would die. Uh, but to be honest, I kind of almost relaxed in a sense because I thought, okay, I thought that was a possibility. <laughs> now I know it's going to happen. I can kind of just relax and kind of wallowing the tragedy because that's me and I like depressing sad things so I yeah so but I thought I thought going into the film this is before I definitely knew he died I thought this is the own I thought it would be entirely fitting for the character's arc um and I thought it was probably the only time in cinematic history where they'll ever actually be able to kill James Bond so considering, you know, all the emotional weight of the preceding films and, and where things are leading. So I thought it was a, a bold choice, undoubtedly. But for me, it felt entirely fitting. And if they had found a way to do the ending from you only have twice the novel where he's thought dead, but not really, which is the other, you know, I thought there was a decent chance of that happening. I think I'd have felt a bit cheated, to be honest. I was really shaken by by the film in so many ways. I didn't know what I was feeling. I was just shocked. I was probably just mouth open, uh, watch, watching at the at the screen. What the hell is going on here? I just stared at the screen and I just stared at the credits roll. And okay, we have all the time in the world is playing. What on earth has has been happening? That was my feeling. And I then I fortunately saw that James Bond will return. I was almost. I was I was scared. Like, uh, are we going to get the James Bond will re- return text at the end or not? And we did get that at, at least. So I didn't cry after James Bond died or anything that happened in the end. Did you guys cry? <laughs> cry <text>? three times. <laughs> um, I was going to say that having having said what I've said, I did shed a tear at the end. Um, okay, it was very sad. Yeah, but it was a little bit rushed or maybe not earned in some way. Yeah, I, I was crying throughout most of the film. So <laughs> that's me. Okay. I like crying at films. I, I, you know, that's one of the best reasons to watch a film, I think, to have a damn good cry because it makes me feel it makes me feel really good. And when you're when you're in a cinema in particular and it's dark and you don't care if anyone's seeing you. Not that I care if people see me cry anyway. I've cried yeah. in front of my students over the years, you know, um, we've been reading something sad or whatever. So I have no compunctions over crying. I don't have any hangups about it being unmasculine or whatever. But I I cried um, when Bond was at Vesper's grave uh, and acknowledged that he missed her because yeah. I thought, oh, I desperately hope what he's just said to Madeline is a lie and he hasn't moved on because I never see Quantum of Solace's him affecting closure at all um, and moving on. i got to ask you guys, yeah. 
about that uh, ex- exploding grave. Did you guys jump in the air when that happened? I did. Yeah, it was pretty shocking. I think I lost 10 years <laughs> off my yeah. life. I, I I hit my husband, and he had to like shift in his seat to sit further away from me, because he knows I'm a jumpy person, and I I almost backhanded him. I was so scared. <laughs> um, still going back to Safin, and this is my last before we go to the quickies because we're pressed on time. Uh, uh, Safin, his his plot, we have discussed this a bit, but did anybody actually catch what the hell is Safin's world domination plan all about like is it about just being kind of doing what bond would do just getting rid of the bad guys and it would be his kind of free range way of getting rid of all the bad guys in the world no he just wants to be satan oh technically that that's the whole thing yeah thank you henrik because that movie doesn't tell me anything (laughs) about this at all. And it kind of makes me think, is there a, a hell of a lot of deleted scenes from this movie? Because that's how it feels like. I almost think they were a bit afraid to go any more definitive than they went. The most, the one of the most powerful moments in the film for me, and it's the, it's Nomi's best moment, is when she kills the, um, the guy who essentially could engineer genocide. And she pushes the professor, I've forgotten his name, but she pushes the professor into the acid bath um, and, and and gets to say the title of the film, essentially, um, because he's basically threatened her entire race with extinction. And as a queer person, um, you know, I, I understand there's not much of a genetic basis for um for for being lesbian gay bisexual and so forth if any at all but at the same time whenever i see any group in society being attacked i feel um really emotional about that and um Mm -hmm. you know obviously race is different from sexuality but uh, i i found that moment because they've got that entire wall of so many different people's genetic code and they can program it however they want. I think it's if you if you let the implications play out in your mind, I think it becomes absolutely terrifying. I'm not saying that during the course of the film, going back to what Lisa was saying, I'm not sure that during the course of the film that all played out in my mind completely. But on further reflection, I think that's what they were sort of going for, that you could wipe out black people. You could wipe out people with you know ginger hair you could wipe out people who have certain genetic traits and that is terrifying yeah of of course it is it's really understandable because attempts at doing this ha- are like they, they they have existed historically like the the prof's line here is is kind of a node node towards project coast an individually felt thread. Guys, yep. on a different topic, did Valdo remind you of Boris from Goldeneye? That, that's the connection I got. In what way? Both mad mad scientists. Scientists don't tend to fare very well full stop in Bond, do they? Um, in really. fact, anyone with a brain doesn't tend to fare very well in Bond. Anyone who's particularly nerdy or geeky, and I use those terms with the deepest of affection. But, yeah. you know, as a self-professed nerd about Bond and 
lots of other things. But yeah, anyone who's even in Fleming, anyone who's intellectual, um, there's a great discussion about it in From Russia with Love. The uh, someone says that all intellectuals are homosexuals, and Bond says no, they're not. <laughs> so, um, so intellectualism is something that's quite other in Bond, regardless of what other characteristics someone has. So I'm try. I'm just trying to think of a really intelligent person in Bond. Who um, mm. or someone who work it, it works in science who isn't evil, <laughs> and I'm 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 coming Q. up short a bit. Q, yeah. Well, well, yeah, Q isn't Q, evil, Q. but Q is treated like shit throughout the series, and Q yeah. is Q is other in the in the in the last three Craig movies as well. Yeah, but Q is Q is probably the only boffin. But you're right, and yeah, Bond doesn't have the greatest of respect for Q until at least License to Kill. Yeah. All right, we we've gone so long, but but the end cannot be far away. So, special mention for an actor goes to what do you think, Lisa? Okay, I mean, I mean, I know I want to say Paloma, but you know what I'm gonna say? I'm gonna say Jeffrey Wright as Felix Leiter. Mm. Um, mm. I was sad that he was killed off. I think that yeah. he's a great actor and I love seeing his scenes with Bond and when they were playing the games, I actually felt a sense of lightness between the two of them, that bond of friendship, right? That you, I mean, you're supposed to know that he is Bond's compatible or comparable person in the CIA and that they're friends, uh, but rarely do you see the friendship part of their connection. And I felt as though, even though the two of them have had interactions throughout I actually felt a sense of friendship and friendliness with them when they were in Jamaica and I think that Jeffrey Wright is just a fantastic actor in general so I give my shout out to him Tom what do you think Ana de Armas for sure 100% Henrik Ana de Armas also for me really enjoyed Paloma for the five minutes that we got her mm. in almost three hour film David I, I, I'm tempted to go with Daniel Craig because I honestly think that he's just spectacular here. But I'm going to say Ben Whishaw because mm. it's actually his reaction. Um, one of my favourite scenes in the movie is when uh, Bond and Moneypenny basically drink the red wine that he's intending for his date. Um, but the, his reaction when he knows Bond is about to die at the end is what actually completely broke me and left me in a puddle for about 15 minutes. I'm a puddle on the floor. That's the one. Hmm. From my my end, it would go to Daniel Craig and maybe Anna de Armas for making a pretty complicated character in short short time work. Zach, uh, I would say uh, Leah Sadeau. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Bring attention to some very small role or whichever role in the film that you found somehow worth of highlighting for whatever reason. Could it be an extra or something else. Tom. Mm. Rory Kinnear. Really? <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, Lisa? I'm going to say a shout out to Judy Dench's M, who is making her way into the fifth Daniel Craig film, even though she's <laughs> dead, but she's in a portrait, and still is one of the most powerful matriarchs uh, that we've ever seen in a film franchise, let alone the Bond franchise. She's been in all of Daniel Craig films now, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not even death can stop Judy Dench. Nope. No. And Zach, what's your pick? I'm going to say Billy Magnuson um, mm. because he just is so like smarmy, dumb American in 
that way, you know, like he can't stop smiling. Uh, he, he just pulls that off really well. All right. Uh, on my part, I give it to however you pronounce this, Colleen Defoe, uh, playing the young Madeleine. I, I, I think all the child performances are really good in the film, not distracting in any way. I was going to say that as well. The child, it's so, how many films can we think of that we've all seen where a child performance has basically ruined the entire movie? Right. Uh, <laughs> like Guardians of the Galaxy, that first awful five minutes uh, <laughs> with that really bad child actor uh, and so many others. Um, but I thought I thought both of them were pitch perfect here. Mathilde, um, and I'm a bit biased because I've got a niece who's about to turn five years old. Um, but I found Mathilde instantly um, engaging. Uh, I love that little moment, which in any other Bond movie you'd think, oh, this is, will be a plot point later on, like Chekhov's gun payoff. But she just starts talking about a mosquito bite on her arm. And that's the kind of random stuff that mm. my five-year-old niece comes out with. And you go, okay, right, fab, great, moving on now. Um, but, you know, that kind of sweet little detail. And they didn't need to put that in the movie. But I think they did to basically say, um, this is a, you know, this is a real child here. Is she your pick as the actor, actress? Yeah, I'm going to go with her. Because everyone else has picked all the others I'd go with. Henrik? I'm going to give it to Christoph Waltz as Blofeld, oh, oh. who really makes a spectacular performance as a man who can't get up from a chair and still has to kind of carry entire Spectre plotline on his shoulders at the end. What resonated with you the most or the least in the film? Let's start with David. I have always identified with Bond even when he I couldn't kind of see why a gay man like me would um and the line that sticks in my head it's actually Safin's line is the one where he says taunts Bond life is all about leaving something behind isn't it and I'm not going to get too deep and meaningful I almost started crying about this when I did my own podcast about no time to die uh, but I think we all think about that from time to time as a uh, as an atheist, I don't believe I'm going anywhere else when I've died. I'm unlikely to pass on my genetic material when I have, but because I probably won't have uh, children of my own. But, you know, we all think about that legacy that we pass on. And for me, I think that's the central theme of the film. And that's the part that just tears me apart, thinking about that. And there not being easy answers to that. Mm. Lisa? You know... As somebody who got married to um, We Have All the Time in the World as my wedding song, hmm. uh, don't use that music if you plan on having a long-lasting relationship because what that song always reminds me of is that marriage and families are not sustainable in the world of Bond. They're not sustainable in the world of spies. They will always separate your loyalty from queen and country you will probably be more loyal to your family and make those types of personalized decisions and i think it's just just don't use it as your wedding song as i did i got divorced i'm just saying like you know we did not have all the time in the world the time ran out so oh dear tom yes hello still here uh what resonated with you the most or the least hmm. i don't know Still trying to figure that out, will not? Still processing. Henrik? For my end, it's going to be the moment when Felix Leiter dies. Like, there are two major deaths, as mentioned, in, in the film. 
this one and and when Bond dies at the very end, and I didn't cry on uh, on either one of them. With, with Bond's death, I felt kind of a dull surprise. I was like, are you gonna remember that Q branch has the EMP tech that can disable nanobots? Oh, you're not. Okay. Well, at least when Felix the Lighter died, there was there was the it was a good life line and some nice cinematography. So from these two moments, I'm going to pick Felix Leiter. Mm, I was expecting James Bond actually to give some kind of a kiss to Felix Leiter at that moment. I, I, I felt that there was some kind of chemistry yeah. going on that now, that now was, you could you, do that. You, you're not alone in that regard. Um, <laughs> there yeah. are quite a few licensed queer readers who are like, uh, where's the kiss here? Even if it's just well, on the forehead. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that yeah, would yeah. have been way too modern for for this movie. But for James Bond I in think. general, hmm. James Bond can't be like like that that adventurous. As uh, it's, as wow. it's, at least with this one, it's finally apparent. I like the clash of multiple styles in the film and how well it still turned out. Like the horror, the realism, the camp, the the serious, the romance, the tragedy and it just works pretty well what about Zach? uh what resonated the most with me was the uh the emotionality of the film uh and as i said the thing that just did not resonate with me was the villain and his entire motivation mm. also the action scenes i have to mention the, and the rich colors in the film and and how the characters are are written uh, the rich colors, though, when I started to pay uh, like a more attention to it, there's not really any kind of a color coding that I could bring. I mean, there's a lot of, well, rainbow colors and a lot of colorful clubs and mm. all kinds of places. But, for example, when you look at the, the ship scene, when Felix Leiter and, and the company is there, the downstairs of that ship, that's in blue color and the upstairs is in red color. But it's not like this kind of a dynamics would work later in the movie that you would have the bad guys with the red color and the good guys with the blue color or something like that. I think it's just all over the place and trying to be very colorful film. I I actually disagree with that. I think that there's a definite color palette Mm. that is resonating across the entire films where there is a blue lens uh, or blue filter that is being used. There's a lot of blue lighting or blue scenes with like the red pops of color. So I think the Cuba sequence is really good at a representation. If you look at the way that the computer models are being presented, there's the blue that's present and then there's the red. If you look at the color coding of what the actual cast are wearing when the group of them get together in MI6, the men are wearing blue shades and the women are wearing like burnt orange shades. Like I do feel as though this is a film that is, and that's using the same basic color palette of dark blue, white, and, and sort of that burnt red color throughout lighting, filters, and costuming. That I mean, that for me, that was probably one of the most like prominent things that was like f- connecting the entire film. Um, at least that's my reading of it. I don't think it's as simple as that in terms of signifiers. Bond's always in blue, especially Daniel Craig with his blue eyes. Yeah. Apart from when he's in pink, um, and it's a shame we haven't had a pink-dressed Bond for 50 mm-hmm. years, until the movie premiere anyway. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not as, you know, someone who's spent a long time studying semiotics over the years, I, I and I've only seen the film once, though, I didn't I didn't spot an overall schema to the 
to the, nothing obvious anyway, to the colours. Lisa, what were you about to say about blue? Oh, I was going to say it reminds me a lot of the colour palette in Skyfall, where it was supposed Mm. to be reflecting Mm. the Union Jack. And so for me, my only question is the the reddish colour seems to be a little bit off. And so I don't know, again, I have to see it in in a, like, I mean, I was thinking more in terms of elements, so I really wasn't thinking in terms of color when I was watching it. I just recognized Mm. the color palette, but blue has been a predominant color that has represented um, agents in MI6 who are loyal to Bond. And so that's something that has really fed its way through um, the Daniel Craig era. And then the question is, you know, how do you understand the red and things like that? But I don't know. I think that there's a lot here to digest and interpret. I think there's a reason. I'm pretty sure there is a reason. I just haven't figured it out yet. So I, I'm not going to bore you with all the references, but as I say, I read the making of book today and the lighting references were mostly uh, quite famous works of art. So there's uh, the Edward Hopper painting Nighthawks, which is supposed to be the lighting reference for... Um, it's very mm-hmm. famous painting uh, where it's that that scene where he meets Paloma for the first time, and there's uh, a few there's some modern art that's referenced later on, but the um, the the thing that I I did notice as I was watching the film and had confirmed from from reading about it was that a lot of the see a lot of scenes particularly in the pre-titles were shot at Magic Hour. So, you know, that that um, around an hour before the sun comes up or when the sun goes down. So they were having to get up really early in the day um, or time things perfectly towards the end of the day to get that look to it, which is always said to be like the, the best time to get some really gorgeous shots. So I thought that was interesting from a color and lighting point of view. In one adjective, how would you describe that this film? My adjective is going to be soft aimless it's it sounds harsher than it's meant to be i didn't feel that the movie overall overall was was like catastrophically aimless in what it wanted to do but the plot still it it kind of keeps bouncing around without without a clear goal that it would want to achieve i will go with chromatic I guess with the with the color theme following on that. I was gonna go with overwhelming because <laughs> that's how I felt about it twenty four hours, hours after, and still a week later, it's kind of like, whoa, I'm still processing it. But I think I'll go with epochal. For me, this this very much has a feel of being um, an end point, but also the a, a new beginning. I also think where the where um, possibilities are going to open up but i also think that it's a i always i always get most a lot of the time i get quite disappointed by film endings to be honest i think it's so hard to wrap things up and i think this this ending does define this era of bond quite neatly lisa adjective Eh, that's not an adjective because the only word that comes to mind is end like i feel like this is the end of the daniel craig era Final. Um, as someone who's felt it's been one note, I'm like, okay, well, if we're gonna if we're gonna end it, let's just end it <laughs> and move on and reboot. Yeah, Zach, I'm going with David and Lisa. My adjective was completed. Mm. Would you consider to watch Never uh, Jesus No Time to Die? Never again. say never again. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I haven't Douglas. seen Never Say Never Again for about 20 years. I'm, I'm stealing myself for it. No, I can't blame you. Henrik, would you watch it again? No Time to Die, in this case. At some date, yeah. Uh, I don't hate Quantum of Solace as much as the entire rest of the world. To me, No Time to Die is is kind of quantum tier. Tom? I agree with Henrik. It's going to be a long time before I see it again. Lisa? Well, I have to keep watching it to study it, so <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, David guess, guess agrees with that. Yeah, I, I, I'm desperate to see it again. I almost went to see it again today, but I just couldn't find the time. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, I will perhaps next weekend see it again. Zach? Yes, for sure. Yeah, also from my end. Nothing much to add to that. Do you think this film will have a legacy? Staying power? I think and yes, because it's the film where Bond dies. So in some sense, yes. Um, in terms of the villains, it's a huge no. Yeah. Lisa? Um, sure. I mean, it's the film that kills James Bond, so that's yeah. going to be its legacy regardless of anything else. Henrik? Yeah, I agree with you guys. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have a legacy, but it's because Bond dies and because the pre-release hype and because this is post-Me Too Bond and, and Corona Bond and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Mm. David? Yeah, I the death thing is the big part of it here. I think all bets are off for future bonds, and I think ultimately that will be liberating because um, we were talking about this, I think, before we started recording, but um, for whatever reason, the box office receipts are, n- are not as positive in the USA as they are in here in the UK, where Bond is, you know, a baked-in cultural institution. But even here audiences are getting older it bond doesn't connect with many younger people particularly the younger people i i'm very familiar with in my day job so i think that whatever they do next i think that what they've done here will set them up for doing something quite different i have no idea what that is and i honestly don't think they have any idea what that is either but when they've decided what it is i think it will I think it will go in quite a different direction. Um, and, you know, I'm up for that. I know some people will be kicking their heels, screaming at the idea, but we'll see. Zach, anything to add? No, I think you guys have said it all. Well, in that case, would you recommend No Time to Die? On my end, it would be a yes. Uh, it's This is a film that it's more than I could have hoped for. For. There's something kind of natural about the the flow of the film still, and the dialogue and the word choices. They, they sound pretty natural natural to the point, but it's not so, some kind of a super edgy dialogue that you have Casino Royale almost to a fault. I like the Bond's arm twisting with Mallory, Lighter's death, where Bond is being adamant that Mallory is a mess as well, and that it's Mallory's mess and not James Bond's mess. And the death scene may not be perfectly executed, but it still works for me. The movie is just a hell of a lot to process. It it feels like a film written by a fan for the fans, but with a pretty good taste. It works more for the film's benefit than against it. Zach? Yes. I think it might be better if you could see some of the other Daniel Craig films to know who these people are, but I don't think it's an absolute. David? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going to go with my father-in-law here. He's in his uh, mid seventies now, and you know he's you know not a Bond obsessive like you know us. Uh, many of us where we can quote every line and sound effect and that kind of stuff. But he he watches his Bond regularly. And I, I see him as the barometer of the bonds. So he doesn't like Quantum of Solace because <laughs> it's all choppy and everything. And I didn't used to like Quantum of Solace, but now I love it. And and that sort of he loves Skyfall. It's the kind of crowd pleasing one I always think. Um, he absolutely loved this. And again, it was perhaps the circumstances we were watching it in. But I I kind of see him as the person who likes Bond but doesn't you know obsess over it and overthink it like I do. And he really loved it. I really loved it. So I, I would recommend this to people, yeah. Tom, what you recommend? It was a good watch. Um, I think it departed way too much from the original Bond, so it's okay. I guess I would. It's not my cup of tea. Lisa? I was asked by somebody when I was pumping gas this morning, and he said, should I go see it? I said, sure, go see it twice. So <laughs> that's my advice to people. See it once, get shocked, see it mm. the second time so you can actually dig into it and then figure out if you like it after that. There's maybe like two questions that I would still like to ask super quick. Like the order of the films that you would put the Daniel Craig films in what which order would you put? Uh, I will go first. Casino Royale, No Time to Die, Quantum of Sol- Solace, Skyfall and Spectre. Yes. Lisa? Um, Casino Royale, Skyfall, Quantum of Solace, No Time to Die and Spectre. Although Quantum of Solace in this film, uh, let's put them in a tie. Tom? Skyfall, Casino Royale. No time to die, and the rest, the toss-up. Herrick? Yeah, Skyfall, uh, Casino, no time to die, Quantum Spectre. David? Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, no time to die, Skyfall and Spectre. Zach? Uh, I've only ever seen three of them, so I'm going to say <laughs> it's uh, Skyfall, no time to die, Spectre. Complete the sentence, please. You really know you're watching No Time to Die. When? When you have so ristuksen kiirennot, että ees kuolla eheri. Those who know it, know it. <laughs> yeah, basically finish for when you're so goddamn busy that you have no time to die. When uh, your poor fanboy brain goes on overdrive, short circuits, catches fire and explodes. David? When you're simultaneously sweating and crying uncontrollably. In other words, just when you're leaking out of every pore of your body. Which is a very unpleasant image I'll give you. But, you know, that was pretty much me last weekend. <laughs> Tom? It's when you when you cry for the first time in literally years. Lisa? Uh, when, when Bond dies. Zach? When you're looking into those baby blue eyes, looking into the baby blue eyes of his child. <laughs> <laughs> Dear listener, would you recommend No Time to Die? Come and comment on our social media pages. I don't know how to say goodbye, but I guess actions speak louder than words. So thank you everyone for coming. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice to have you all as our guests. And Patreon announcement. This is a very special night for us. We've just now launched Patreon where you can support this podcast. We we want you to know that only only through your very generous donations can the work here at the Flick Lab continue to progress. You know, we've learned so much, but we've only just scratched the surface. We need your help. We need you to go to your internet browsers right now and make a pledge. This is not for me. This is not for them. It's for all of us. We need your help. Bless your hearts. I don't think I've learned anything from this podcast. (laughs) 
That's a universally felt experience. <laughs> this has been the most ham-fisted, quote-filled episode that I've ever done in this podcast. Sorry for everybody. But do you want to drop any links? Where can people find Dr. Lisa Funnell? Uh, you can find me, Dr. Lisa Funnell, two N's, two L's, and Funnel on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook. Uh, you can go to lisafunnel.com for my website, and you can find my books and other writings on Amazon. What about Mr. License to Queer, where we can find yeah. you? Yeah, so if you just put License to Queer, or if you just type James Bond Queer into Twitter, it'll come up immediately, uh, into uh, Google, I mean, sorry. Yeah, License is spelt the British way, like the title of the film was, so two Cs. Uh, but if you type in the American one, it'll redirect you anyway. And it's the same on Twitter and Instagram. Please get in touch if you want to write something or do anything. It's a really collaborative thing, so the more the merrier. Yep. And I've been Corri, and you can find me also on Twitter if you can type my name correctly. Good luck with that. <laughs> and Zach, I think we can find you as well. Yes, ZacharyPen48 on Twitter. And Henrik? Well, there really is no social media to follow me. So onto the dark alley to find you then. Uh, yeah, into the dark alley. Hopefully I didn't sound offensive or... I don't think Never so. Know. Only the puns. I was offended by the puns. <laughs> I, I, I was offended by the quality of puns. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we do best here. Much more, Roger more. Cucumber sandwich afternoon tea. <laughs> that's the level of intellect. All right. Thanks so much. That was the Bond run. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. See you in a fortnight. Bye-bye. Until then. Later. I'm like, okay, well, if we're going to end it, let's just end it <laughs> and move on and reboot.